Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. My guest this week is Dr. Joelle Minden. Joelle is a clinical psychologist and the author of the book, Show Your Anxiety Who is the Boss. It's such a cool title. We all experience anxiety, and even though it's uncomfortable, it can actually be useful at times. But when anxiety dominates a person's life, when anxiety takes over a person's day-to-day life, that's very debilitating. And in our conversation, we talk about how to handle anxious thoughts, worry thoughts, and Joel shared three particular skills he teaches his clients. So as you listen to our conversation, I want to encourage you to try these skills and see how they work for you. We also discuss in detail how you can practice acceptance of anxious thoughts, acceptance of your internal experience, and how it looks and sounds when you're practicing acceptance. Also, close to the end of our conversation, you will hear Joel and I clarifying some of the myths or misconceptions about behavior therapies or behaviorists in general. So I hope that you can listen to them because many times there is a lot of misinformation about what means to practice behavioral oriented approaches or behaviorally oriented coaching in the work that we do with clients. And as usual, if you have any curiosity, any comments, or even a request for an episode, please go to the website www.thisisdrz.com and send me an email. I promise I will get back to you. Enjoy the episode and see you next week. Bye-bye. Joel, it's a pleasure to have you in the Playing It Safe podcast. Thank you for making the time. Hi, Patricia. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk with you. Likewise, it's a pleasure because this is the first time that we're chatting in the podcast. I'm wondering if you don't mind sharing with the audience, what are you doing these days? What's the focus of your clinical work? Sure. I specialize in treatment for anxiety disorders and related concerns. Uh, I primarily use cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And uh, I have a private practice, and I'm also a lecturer at California State University, Chico, in the psychology department. My goodness, you're very busy. Right now, with school in session, yeah. You forgot to mention that you're also an author. You have some books published out there. That's right. I'm the author of Show Your Anxiety, Who's Boss? Been translated into Spanish. I wish I could read it or understand the audiobook. It's also uh, in Russian, Polish. 
Wow, congratulations. That's really cool. Thank you. And I know the book is focused on anxiety. Would you mind sharing with us what's the story behind the book? How did you come up with the idea? How did you decide to organize the book? Well, uh, I came up with the idea by um, uh, speaking with um, the acquisitions editor that I was working with uh, at New Harbinger Publications, um, the publisher, Ryan. And uh, Ryan and I talked about the focus of the book and... uh, I really wanted to emphasize some of the things that I use quite a bit in clinical practice. And the book has uh, three basic components or or focus areas that I think can be really helpful for people who are struggling with anxiety. And so in the book, um, it's divided into three sections. And so the sections deal with um, realistic and useful thinking, uh, taking action rather than prioritizing avoidance. And being more accepting of difficult emotions like anxiety, so it's a little easier to work through discomfort when situations are anxiety-provoking. So those are the three um, basic elements of my uh, approach in in clinical practice, and I wanted to make that uh, the focus of the book as well. Will it be okay if I share with you an example of a situation that I got stuck the other day? And maybe we can see how those principles might apply to this situation. How does it sound? That sounds great. (laughs) From time to time, I'm afraid of driving in the middle of the night. Even 7 p.m. feels too scary to me. I don't avoid driving on the freeway in the night. But if I see a truck, I may hold the wheel very, very hard. And I'm just overly hyper-focused on the freeway until I cannot see that, that truck. In those moments, I am afraid of having a panic attack. My mind tells me you may have a panic attack. What if you have a car accident? What if you die in the freeway? How would you apply these principles of your book into that particular scenario? That sounds like a very scary experience. It can be a scary at times. Yeah, thank you. I I can actually relate to this because I'm not the most confident driver especially at night. And uh, so I do feel uncomfortable sometimes driving um, in part, just because I I think my visual spatial skills aren't the best. So I, you know, I I can drive, but not, not very confident about my driving abilities. So in in situations like that, where there's a lot of traffic or, um, you know, a lot of big trucks around or things like that, I I also get anxious. So I can relate that can be uncomfortable. So in terms of of dealing with something like that, you know, when anxiety escalates to the point that it's, um, you know, so intense that it's um, kind of aligned with what we usually think of as panic, which is kind of a, a much more um, intense version of typical anxiety. And and I think um, I, I think of panic as anxiety about anxiety mm-hmm. or catastrophic thinking about anxiety, this you know, as you mentioned, right, what if uh, anxiety escalates to the point that I lose control and I'm going to get into an accident or I'll have a, you know, the, the, the symptoms will escalate and I'll have a panic attack and all of that. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of dealing with that, I think it's very helpful to understand the thinking uh, behind panic. And, and so mm-hmm. I always find it useful to remember that, um, 
that anxiety is a normal emotional response. And if you're anticipating a threat, if you think you're in danger and that something bad will happen, you're going to feel anxious. But it's the catastrophic thinking about anxiety itself uh, that often leads to panic. So I think a helpful thing to remember in a moment like that is um, I'm anxious, I'm uncomfortable, this is a difficult Mm -hmm. emotion, but I don't have to let anxiety control me. It's a harmless emotion. Um, you know, even if it escalates, it's going to decline on its own. I don't have to work so hard to try to fight it. I can work through it. I can tolerate this. So being aware of, you know, the catastrophic thinking, if that does come up in a moment like that, I think that would be important for some people. It's helpful to challenge those thoughts and try to be more realistic in their thinking. But I find that, you know, for other people, um, being realistic, uh, can backfire. So for example, if you tell yourself that, um, you know, it's very unlikely, uh, that I'm going to get into an accident or that I'll need to pull over. Some people might, uh, sort of respond to that idea with, um, the, the belief that, well, unlikely isn't, isn't good enough for me. I need to know for sure that I'm going to be safe here. And so there may be a lot of back and forth, kind of an internal argument where it's, you know, maybe this will happen, maybe it won't. And, uh, you know, and that can be very unproductive. So I think for folks who tend to get locked into concerns about, you know, what if uh, people who really struggle with uncertainty, um, Mm -hmm. that's not a helpful process to try to be more realistic in thinking. So in those cases, perhaps a more useful response would be, to accept the emotional experience, you know, to acknowledge that this is hard, it's uncomfortable, but it is just a feeling and I'm going to do my best to work through it and really focus on not, not so much on how I'm feeling in this moment, but really focus on driving because that's Mm -hmm. the most important thing to do in that moment. And uh, (laughs) maybe not acting on the urge to pull over or, you know, do whatever um, provides a, maybe a false sense of safety but instead, you know, keeping your eyes on the road, maybe slowing down a little bit, maybe being more aware of your surroundings and really, you know, giving yourself an opportunity to be effective in that moment, despite the presence of anxiety. Mm-hmm. If I can recap a little bit, I think what you're saying is that in those moments, it's important to do some self-coaching, to coach ourselves how we can handle that moment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the past, people have criticized that within acceptance and commitment therapy, we are all about not using any type of coaching, that it's all about acceptance. But, you know, all psychological processes require that we become our own coach. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're suggesting here. Now, will it be okay if I'm a little bit sassy? (laughs) Can I be a little bit sassy? (laughs) Is that okay? Yes. We both are trained in cognitive behavior therapy. We both are trained in acceptance and commitment therapy. And I think within cognitive behavior therapy, there are so many interventions. And one of them in the past traditionally has been to challenge thoughts, has been to look for evidence for and evidence against. And within acceptance and commitment therapy, we don't challenge the thoughts. We invite people to figure out their values, practice some acceptance of the uncomfortable internal experience and take action. But you're mentioning that sometimes perhaps for some people, maybe it's helpful to do some of this challenging of their thoughts and maybe for others not. In your experience as a psychologist, do you have a sense who will be a good candidate for engaging in some challenging 
of thinking versus other people that are not good candidates. And they may actually do much better with practicing acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I, I think it, uh, a lot of it comes down to um, how does the person deal with uncertainty? Um, and I think for some people, you know, the, the prospect of moving into a, an important challenge um, without having complete certainty that, that things are going to work out, that they're going to be safe, it's just too uncomfortable. Um, and I think whether, you know, you challenge the beliefs or you accept the beliefs or whatever, right, it's, it's important if you're going to be able to do things that are difficult, that are anxiety provoking, you have to be able to live with a certain amount of uncertainty. So I think that people who struggle, in my experience, the people who struggle the most with uncertainty um, are not open to cognitive restructuring, thinking about things in more realistic ways, because it seems like the mind always goes to, well, there's a chance that I won't be okay and, and I'm not all okay with that. That's a beautiful observation. Thank you for sharing that. I think the intolerance to uncertainty can be a variable to see who responds better to restructuring, to challenging thoughts versus acceptance. In the last couple of years, what I have noticed is that people who are high in rumination or people who are prone to rumination they will do much better with acceptance-based processes versus a person that doesn't have too much tendency to ruminate and get stuck in their head. Mm. In fact, years ago, this is maybe 10, 15 years ago, we did a tiny study with one of my students looking at the degrees of rumination a person engages and who will respond better to acceptance versus challenging difficult thoughts. And it was a small study with a small sample size, so it's not something I can generalize. But I do think that if we think about how we function in our day-to-day -day life and how our clients deal with uncomfortable internal experiences, some people are not so cooked in their head. There is more flexibility. And other times, you see people that are really consumed by the thoughts and they're taking every catastrophic thought very seriously. Thank you for being open to your chat about these things. Of course. Uh, if I can ask a little bit more, one of the things that you and I do a lot is exposure-based treatments. We basically help people to face any situation, activity, or objects they have been avoided, they have become aversive. Now, in the process of helping people to face and do their own exposures, sometimes I see my clients powering through them as if something that I had to check off from a list, right? Like I did it, I took the elevator 50 times today, or I drove in the freeway. Within acceptance and commitment therapy, more than checking things off from a list, we're more invested in what's your attitude, how you're approaching that particular experience. Are you making room to notice what you're feeling, what you're sensing? Are you making room to notice what your mind is telling you? versus just going through it. If you see any of your clients powering through these experiences just to get them done, what would you encourage them to do? So they kind of slow down a little bit and really learn more about the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so tricky because um, you have to be a brave person to do exposure-based work. And um, some people, you know, they just think, like you said, I'm, I'm just going to power through this. I'm going to white knuckle it. And, yep. you know, the, the focus is on the task. 
Mm -hmm. um, rather than the inner experience that goes along with the, with performing the task. Mm -hmm. So I, I like how you said, um, you know, helping people slow down and that's, I I use that language. I ask folks uh, to, you know, if we're kind of doing something together, maybe we can slow things down a little bit. Let's try to um, not power through this. Let's see if we can, kind of gradually move toward this challenge um, and pay attention to what's going on as you do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's your body doing? What, what are you, what's the subjective emotion? What are the thoughts? What are the avoidance urges? um, If, if any, and really being aware of, of those inner experiences, because uh, I think that's how people grow. That that's where, you know, in my opinion, the, the challenge is not so much, you know, how do I do this, this uh, behavioral thing? The challenge is how do I deal with all of that internal activity that gets in my way when I'm trying to do this important thing? So I, I do think it's important to pay attention to that, that stuff. Um, and I actually use that acronym stuff to describe the inner experience, um, but pay attention to it and figure out what does it mean? How do I understand it? How do I want to relate to it? Mm-hmm. That's so I, huge I think for, for getting the most out of exposure-based treatment. Yeah, I was nodding while you were talking because I, I completely agree with what you're saying that relates to it. It's much more important to figure out how we're dancing with all the yucky stuff that comes when something is scary than just doing it. Mm. Um, do you mind clarifying what's the STUFF acronym? Sure. So STUFF, uh, I, I really like this acronym. I find it so useful. Really? I, I say that, um, you know, anxiety or just emotions in general have four elements. And um, the... So STUFF with just one F uh, is an acronym that represents the four uh, components or, or dimensions of anxiety or other emotions. So can, S- I, guess? can I guess maybe? Okay. I'm, okay. I'm sure you can guess. <laughs> okay, let's see how we do with it. Okay. STUFF with one F, no two Fs. Okay. Uh, S for sensations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, T for thoughts. Yes. Uh, U for urges. That's right. And F for feelings. Yes. Okay. <laughs> or feeling labels. Feeling labels. <laughs> okay, I love it. How did you come up with this acronym? This, um, well, I was influenced by um, emotion efficacy therapy. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a mindful acceptance practice that I, I took from from that book. It's a wonderful book uh, and um, lots of great resources in there. And I use the mindful acceptance practice in, in my clinical work. And it's also in my book, a version of that. And I was just thinking about, you know, what's an easy way for people to remember those those different elements of emotions. And, uh, you know, I thought I thought of this acronym stuff. And what I like about it is if you're going through a difficult time emotionally, you can ask, well, you can notice your stuff mm-hmm. and you can ask, what do I want to do with my stuff? And I find that to be such a helpful reminder because it's so easy to get distracted and overwhelmed, but really bringing attention back to what am I working with? What's my stuff? What do I want to do with my stuff? I, I just find it to be such a helpful cue and it makes it really easy to go, oh yeah, okay, let me pay attention to 
what's happening in it, happening internally and make a choice about what I want to do with it. It sounds very useful. I haven't heard it before, but I will certainly try it. Um, I love the idea of using acronyms to bring ourselves back into the present and stay with experience, uh, especially when doing exposure-based work. It's easy to just power through things. Um, Joel, if people want to tackle anxiety and they have your book in front of them, where would you recommend them to start? Would you say go from chapter one until the end? Or what do you think are the key chapters from your book that maybe they can start reading? Well, it's hard to answer that question because I think uh, people are so different and some people are going to respond more to the sections that deal with acceptance and some people are, are going to respond more to the action-oriented sections. Mm-hmm. And some people, um, you know, perhaps really like or they would benefit from paying more attention to how they think and recognizing some of the biases in in their um in their beliefs and learning to think in more more realistic and useful ways so it really depends on on the person i, I guess personally i believe that the most important thing when it comes to long term anxiety management is figuring out how to live your life, how to do these important but anxiety-provoking activities that um, that are so tough to do because anxiety gets in the way. So I think, you know, a starting point um, for most people is what are you not doing because of anxiety and what do you want to be able to do? What, what's missing that's so meaningful that really gives you a sense of, of purpose, something that would be fulfilling if you were doing this? What is it that you want to do and how can you start doing those things? So I think that's sort of in the middle of the book where I talk more about the, uh, the action-oriented steps. And that, that section of the book, I call it Take Action, Demand Satisfaction. Mm, instead, of, uh, instead of you know avoiding challenges because anxiety gets in the way, take action, do the difficult things, do the important things. And demand satisfaction doesn't mean you know, it's going to be easy or comfortable, or I'm going to be happy while I do it or or anything like that. But it's about long-term life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. The more that you're able to do these things that, that bring that meaning to your life, um, you know, the more you learn about yourself and your ability to tolerate or work through anxiety and, and grow and and really develop. So those are the important long-term lessons I think that we get when we do exposure-based work. So that, that part of the book, I think is really central to long-term growth and anxiety management. So I guess if I had to pick one part, I I would say that's uh, perhaps the best starting point. And, and I guess the final uh, thought about all that is, I, I do think it's important for people to uh, develop uh, flexibility in the way they respond to anxiety. So um, just picking, uh, for example, I, I have a lot of clients who have found that, you know, when I take action, when I start doing things that are that are difficult, it boosts my mood. I get a sense of accomplishment. Um, I see that, you know, I'm much more effective than I thought I, I was or that I could be. And that's really powerful, but I find that sometimes people get so locked into this idea, I have to keep moving, I have to keep doing difficult things, and they're not really learning so much about what anxiety means and and how to respond to it. So I think be flexible. Um, 
here's an example. Some people, you know, they're really action oriented and it pays off for them. Mm-hmm. Then they find themselves worrying a lot. They're worrying about things. And that's, you know, how do you take action, right? Here you're dealing with a cognitive process and it's not a matter of, you know, how do I let go of that and go do something else? It's a matter of how do I make sense of this worry process and what am I going to do with it? And so it's less, I think with, with that kind of problem, you know, the answer isn't how do I, you know, move toward the challenge um, now the issue is how do I deal with this very intense urge that I have to overthink things, to uh, establish greater certainty in my life. And then that takes over and, you know, trying to be action oriented to solve that problem. I, I don't think that's the solution. So big picture, I think it's good for people to develop a, a number of uh, strategies um, that they can implement to address anxiety in in different ways, to be flexible. I think many times we do require a large repertoire of skills. Some skills are action-based and other times we need the skills to handle all these what-if thoughts, all these catastrophic thoughts or underestimating my ability to cope. So if people are overthinkers and they are more prone to have these what-if thoughts, what if this goes wrong, terribly wrong, where should they start in your book? Uh, well, some people are overthinkers and, um, that served them well. Maybe they have jobs that require a lot of cognitive effort and, uh, it works for them, right. To really, to think carefully and and to plan and problem solve. So I think, um, sometimes that stuff is really valuable to, to have that, that cognitive style. So, um, but on the other hand, if, if somebody is a worrier and they worry about an uncertain future that they couldn't possibly predict or control, um, then maybe starting with the, um, the third section of the book, which I call accept and redirect. Okay. And, and here's where um, it can be really valuable to accept that uncertainty is hard for me. Um, there are things that I'm concerned about. I have a tendency to go in circles in my mind, trying to get more certainty, trying to answer the unanswerable. And so I think in the third section of the book, I really focus on how can you recognize uh, the difference between these concerns that are going to be responsive to um, planning and problem solving and how can you recognize the concerns that are just going to get in your way because you're never going to get the answers you're looking for. So for, for people who, you know, tend to get stuck on uh, stuck in a pattern of worry mm-hmm. overthinking, I think um, section three, uh, accept and redirect is probably a good starting point. Lovely. And thank you for clarifying. We're not saying that Overthinking is always bad. We're clarifying in the context of avoiding something that blocks and affects negatively your life. That's when you want to pay attention to the skills that you need to handle those thoughts or those uncomfortable emotions. So I'm going to take a look to the section accept and redirect. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I have lots of little catchphrases in the book because I think it's, you know, it's helpful to have those go-to messages when things get complicated. And and I find that, you know, most people who struggle with anxiety, um, you know, get wrapped up in details and, and, um, 
you know, and like I said, sometimes that really helps and sometimes it gets in the way. So having a message that you can come back to accept and redirect, take action, demand satisfaction, or the, the first part of the book, um, which is um, useful predictions, not anxious fictions, uh, <laughs> something, some message that you can come back to when you're getting stuck, uh, I think is, is really, really helpful. Um, and it's just an easy reminder, right? That I've got lots of options here. I don't always have to go to my recipe. The one tactic that I always go to, I, I can do different things that might be helpful. Yeah. I think these catchy sentences help people to remember the skill that they have to use. And they sound fun. They sound absolutely fun. <laughs> I think they're fun. I hope other people do. Well, I do. <laughs> I find <it> really fun. <laughs> Um, Joel, I have a last question for you. If you were to have a cup of coffee, tea, or a scotch or a beer with any person you want, who would that be today and why? Hmm, today. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd have to give this some thought. Well, I'm just going to go with, um, you know, the first person that, that comes to mind. And uh, this might be um, sort of an unexpected answer, but I've been thinking about um, psychologist Carl Rogers a lot, and I'm a big fan of uh, Rogers and the Rogerian approach. And for listeners who may not be familiar with with Rogers, um, his uh, his approach to to therapy, his uh, client centered or person centered approach, really appeals to me. I, I sort of look at um, you know the the Rogerian approach as in my opinion, it, it, it is, is, or should be the foundation for all psychotherapies. And, uh, I absolutely love his, his, uh, approach and, and his perspective and, um, you know, just this idea of, um, you know, that we, we've been talking a lot about acceptance today. And I think, uh, one of the things that, that has really influenced me in, in my professional work is the um, Rogers belief that it's just so important to acknowledge the authentic self that we're going to have um, ideas, uh, fantasies, conflicts, um, urges, uh, th these things that we have to deal with, right? It's a part of life. And when we try to defend against these things that we don't like or that don't that don't make sense or that make us uncomfortable, we struggle. And I think so many people struggle because they're working so hard to try to be somebody else, to try to be different, to try to overcome these things that are uniquely and authentically human. And, and I think if we can learn to accept that, um, you know, sometimes the things that we experience Mm -hmm. um, we don't really control or understand and working harder to try to defeat these difficult things is, is not the solution. It's, um, you know, it's really going to take us away from, from being authentic. So I, I think it's just so valuable to be able to, um, you know, to kind of tap into who am I, uh, mm -hmm. what's the authentic me? Can I be true to myself? Can I share that with other people? Can I take the risk and, and be authentic about the way I express some of those things to others? And that's such a scary thing to do. So um, I would love to, uh, you know, it was a long, long way of um, addressing this, <laughs> this question, but I would yeah. love to be able to learn um, directly from somebody like Rogers about how he uh, developed his understanding of the human experience 
um, and why he thinks these concepts are so uh, foundational to um, therapeutic movement. Um, while you were talking, I was thinking how often behavior therapists get accused of not paying attention to that relationship. We get accused of being overly focused in homework or worksheets. The reality is that we cannot do the work we do without paying attention to who the person is in front of us. And I think it is courageous to accept ourselves as we are, to love ourselves with all the layers and experiences and terrible thoughts we have about ourselves. And I think that can be liberating. And behavior therapists, we do think about self-acceptance and self-love. <laughs> so we we absolutely do. Yes, I, I think it's unfortunate. There's there's this uh, kind of idea out there in the world that, yeah, like you said, that we're just, you know, um, here's some worksheets and um, very, very rigid in our approach and just, you know, develop these skills. And, and I'm not going to be focused on who you are as a human being. And I, I think that's so far removed from the work we actually do. And, and that acceptance is huge. It, it's so uh, powerful in, in terms of creating a platform for for movement and growth. So yeah, it sort of blows my mind when when people think that, you know, we're we're disconnected from that, or we're not thinking about the relationship or being uh, authentic and and accepting. Um, I really believe that that's uh, you know that's that's an essential component of of all uh, therapy. And without that, you know, whatever we do on top of that, the the cognitive and behavioral work. Um, it's it's just really hard to get anything from the process of therapy. So I, I think. Um, yeah, that, that stuff is huge. And, and it's just disappointing to me that people don't recognize that, um, you know, that so much of what we do is is really uh, driven by that that theoretical framework. That's true. I, like you, I feel disappointed and unseen because I think that at the end of the day, as behaviorists, we are definitely creating a transformative experience for the people that we work with. We have very intimate conversations. I think hundreds of times I have seen this with my clients, that the richness of the connection we do have, that by itself can be so transformative for people because they experience themselves in a different way in the context of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a platform, that's a foundation, and that's the base for all the other stuff we do. Without having that intimate connection, I think we have nothing, no matter how many skills we may know. But without that sense of accepting people for who they are and modeling for them that they can be who they are and that they are perfect human beings exactly as they are, that's the work. That's, I think, at the basis of what we do. So for people listening to us, please remember, behavior therapist, pay attention to who you are as a human being. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've been talking so much about anxiety and, you know, I think this is a good example. People, people who struggle with anxiety, uh, you know, take a risk when they reveal um, their, their emotional struggles with, with people that are close to them in their lives. So if you say, you know, I, I'm anxious about this or that, um, mm-hmm. that's a hard thing to do because, you know, friends and family members, they're concerned about your welfare, but 
you know, the way they respond, it might be reassuring. Oh, you're fine. Everything's okay. And the person might think you don't get it. That's, that's not what I believe. And, and you're minimizing the, the struggle that I'm, I'm going through or, you know, stuff like, oh, let it go. Right. You're overreacting. Right. And it's so, so dismissive, so cruel. And so what an amazing experience, right. in, in therapy to say, you know, I'm opening up, I'm, I'm being authentic here. Here's the thing that really scares me. And to work with somebody who says, um, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to deal with. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to try to correct you. I'm not going to, you know, challenge this perspective. I'm, I'm going to try to understand what it's like to be you and accept that this is a hard thing for you. And, and, you know, let's just connect on that level before we do anything else. And, and that's so powerful, um, you know, to get that message from, from another person because then, right, we can look at ourselves and say, you know what, that's okay. It's okay for me to deal with difficult emotions. It's okay for me to get overwhelmed by things. It's okay for me not to always have the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody else, you know, can accept me uh, as an imperfect person or a person who struggles or a person who's human, um, then maybe I can accept myself too. And uh, I, I think that's so huge. Yeah, I think what a gift to be able to see a person for who they are, given where they are in their life with a lot of openness and caring. And again, I am grateful that we can talk about it today as practitioners, as behaviorists, because often we get, we get mislabeled and we get misjudged. Dear Joel, thank you so much for chatting today. It has been such a treat. I know we went back and forth so many times and finally we made it happen. <laughs> so many, many thanks for sharing all your work and also sharing all these insights and wisdom you have in the field. Many, many thanks. Thank you, Patricia. Thanks so much for uh, having me on your podcast. So I'm glad we were able to finally do it and, and chat. And it's been a very stimulating conversation and hope we can do it again. Yes, I would love to torture you again. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website, playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!